0: Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind.
1: Now there are two events in the church year that are really well known. Almost everyone knows them, I'm sure you do. They are Christmas and Easter. And both of them are very important. Both of them too are widely misunderstood. And both Christmas and Easter are associated with things that have got really nothing to do with them. In the case of Christmas, it's Santa Claus and Christmas trees. And in the case of Easter, it's Easter eggs, usually made of chocolate, and bunnies. And it turns out that these things have got now to do with Easter. So what are Christmas and Easter about? Actually, they are very precious times in the historic Christian calendar because they commemorate key times in the life of Jesus Christ. At Christmas, we remember his incarnation, And his birth. So, his incarnation is where God became man, took our flesh and became one of us and dwelt for a while among us. And at Easter, we remember the other end of his life, which is his death on the cross and his resurrection from death on the third day. So, these are incredibly important and precious times. And today is the beginning of what is traditionally called Holy Week or sometimes Passion Week. It's the time where we remember the events of the final week of Jesus' life that led to his crucifixion on Friday and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. So we at Grace Church are going to be spending our next three services, including this one, on a series called Passion Week. I don't know if the slide's going to come up, but Passion Week, we're looking at these three focal points in Mark's account, in Mark's Gospel, of what happened during Passion Week. We're looking at the Garden of Gethsemane, The cross and the tomb. The garden, the cross and the tomb. So let me invite you to come back next Friday. That's a good Friday morning at 10.30 and then Easter Sunday at 10.30. And we'll continue in this series. And first of all, I I need to just mention why it's called Passion Week. It's a strange word. We don't usually associate passion with this kind of thing. Well, passion comes from the Latin word for suffering. Suffering. So the final week of Jesus' earthly life. Was full of suffering and so they historically used the term passion today we're looking at the garden of gethsemane and i want to just come into this text and ask what is this all about what is it trying to show us a friend of mine a scottish pastor called neil Macmillan, invites us to picture a garden at night it's a Middle Eastern olive grove. The word Gethsemane means an olive press. It's where they used to press the olives. And it's probably walled. And there was a lingering warmth in the air. And just picture yourself strolling into this garden, enjoying the gentle sounds of the night and the rich fragrance of the, gl- the grass and the flowers and the olive trees. And up above, the sky is clear. Perhaps it's a deep blue. And you can see the stars. And you feel quite charmed by the whole experience. And then you see something that you didn't expect to see. Coming through some trees to a clearing, you see a number of men sitting or lying in a variety of postures on the soft ground, and all of them are fast asleep. But then a little further on, you see three more men. And a bit further again, just beyond them, you can see another man lying with his face toward the ground. But this man is very much awake. As you watch more closely, you see that his entire body seems to be twisted in agony. The expression on his face is tormented and grief-stricken. He's sobbing and calling out with heart-piercing cries. Such is the intensity of his emotional pain and distress that sweat is pouring out of his face like drops of blood and falling to the earth. In fact, you have never seen another human being in the grip of such distress. This is the Garden of Gethsemane, and you are looking at Jesus Christ. What's going on? Now, the context is that it's the night before Jesus is betrayed and crucified, and he's going through a horror of anticipation. And his closest friends and allies, his disciples, are sleeping at his hour of greatest need. Now, the Bible uh, is a library of books. It's a great work of literature. But the Bible primarily wasn't written just to give us information. It's primarily written for transformation. God caused it to be written down for our good, to save us. So the question we always need to ask when we open the Bible and look at any passage is... What is this text intending to do in my life? What is this text intending to do in my life? And to answer that question, I want to look at four things that come out of this narrative. Four things that come out. The first two are about Jesus' experience in the garden. And the last two are about the disciples. So Jesus' experience in the garden is one of agony and victory. And the disciples' experience is one of apathy and desertion. Agony... Victory, apathy, desertion. That will take us through this narrative. Firstly, agony. Look again at what Jesus says in verses 33 and 34. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Just look at that language for a moment. Let's just pause and try and take that in. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This is an unbearable grief. A sorrow such that we've never known. Jesus says he's overwhelmed. He's going down. He's he's, he's like he's in a flood. He's, he's being... Uh, uh, drowned in it and his grief is nearly killing him and this is no exaggeration you know that people can die from grief and over the years a lot of people have actually struggled with what we've just read and some Christians have struggled with it too because they think that it makes Jesus look weak and scared and they find it distasteful and they secretly think to be honest Jesus doesn't compare that well to other people who face death more bravely. One example is Socrates, the great Greek philosopher. When Socrates went to his death, his followers were distraught and they were in tears and they were following along. But they carefully wrote down that he steadily taught right up to the end and he had a cool and calm and almost ironic way of facing death. And he delivered his final words with a cool irony. Then there were plenty of stories of martyrs, people who gave up their life for the faith. One example is a Mancunian, John Bradford. He was an English martyr who was burned at the stake in London, Smithfield in 1555. Before the fire was lit, John Bradford spoke up and he talked to the crowd and he begged forgiveness of anyone that he had wronged. And he offered forgiveness to anyone that had wronged him. And then he turned to a young man who was being burned at the stake with him. This man was called John Leaf. And he said these words, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord tonight. Now that's inspirational, isn't it? Brave, bold. Why doesn't Jesus face death like that? For a few moments, it looks as if he's almost going to fall apart. Some have concluded that it was fear, that Jesus was overwhelmed with fear. But notice our text never mentions fear, and neither do Matthew, Luke and John, the other official accounts. And you can tell that these accounts are searingly honest, aren't they? Clearly this is not your standard heroic narrative of someone who courageously faces down death. It is brutally real and honest, so much so that some have found it uncomfortable. So much so that some early Christian theologies actually couldn't cope with this. It looks weak. And we are treading on holy ground here. We're, we're invited into such an intimate and vulnerable scene that we're almost embarrassed to look on it. Why does the author tell us this? Well, I'm convinced that the answer is he wants us to see just what Jesus Christ endured. For you and me. He wants us to see just what Jesus Christ endured for you and me. The reason Jesus goes through such horror is because his death is utterly unique. It is like no other death in history. You see, Jesus was not just facing physical pain and torture and the agony of crucifixion, as bad as that was. He was actually facing something that was much. Deeper and more profoundly grievous and horrific. And the clue in this text is in the little phrase in verse 36 about the cup. Have a look at that with me, would you? Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I want, but what you will. The cup. Now, what is this cup he's talking about? In the Bible, the cup of is a standard way of talking about God's wrath, God's anger being revealed against human sin and God's judgment falling upon all the wickedness and sin of humanity in the form of a cup that people have to drink. It's the cup of God's wrath and judgment. And here Jesus knows that at the cross that's the cup he's going to drink. At the cross he would not merely die he would endure all of the righteous anger and wrath of God on a world of sin and he would take that dark penalty alone. And that meant that Jesus would be torn apart. Christians understand that God is a a trinity, a triunity of three persons, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And these three persons in one God have dwelt together from all eternity in a family of love and so Jesus here even alludes to that with his language Abba father very intimate way of speaking to God no uh, Orthodox Jew would ever address God as Abba that's a very personal What it's like calling him daddy Jesus now in his mind's eye is facing and contemplating the greatest tearing apart of a relationship possible you see the wrath of God was going to be a torment of separation Now, we know something of this pain, don't we? When a relationship separates that shouldn't have, that when there's a tearing apart, and the more intimate and the more important and the more long-lasting the relationship, the more painful it is when it is severed. If your friend says, I reject you, it is bad. But if your spouse says, I reject you, it is far, far worse. Now, God is going to forsake Jesus at the cross the father will forsake and crush the son and we cannot imagine the intimacy and the love that the father and the son had enjoyed together throughout all eternity it was total absolute and infinitely richer than any relationship or love or joy we will ever know their intimacy was from all eternity and so Jesus' contemplation of that is contemplation of a tearing apart of a disintegration of a torment in the complete loss of a relationship that we can't ever really imagine the loss of it was an infinite pain all of this is in jesus heart and mind in the garden and the mere anticipation of it and the waiting for it breaks his heart The waiting, the anticipation, is an agony of grief. So let me just step back from that that scene for a moment and apply this to Christian believers who are watching our service today. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what does this mean for you? Friends, do you ever ask, does Jesus understand my pain? Well, now you know the answer. He's experienced a pain that none of us will ever have to. And do you ever ask, how do I know that Jesus loves me? Well, now you know the answer. Look at what he endured for your sake. But we don't stop there, in the agony, because Jesus didn't. We're moving from agony now to victory the second point, victory. You see, the text doesn't stop in the agony. It shows how Jesus overcame even the horror of this moment. And he comes through in victory. Now, in the second half of the reading that Ali read, uh, we have this sordid account of a betrayal. Judas, who's one of his closest followers, comes to find Jesus with a group, a cra- kind of a mob that have been hired by Jesus' enemies, the the religious establishment, and they're armed with swords and clubs and there's quite a crowd of them and they are coming with force, with any necessary force, to take him, to take him into their custody, to lead him down a path that will inevitably take him to the cross. And one of the, the, the most intimate pictures of betrayal, I think, that's ever been found in literature is the signal that Judas had planned. It was a code that he told... The crowd, when you see all the men, I will pick out the one you want by going and kissing him. And it was an intimate greeting that a friend or a trusted associate would give to someone. It could be a kiss on the hand or the feet. It could even be a kiss on the cheek. But one way or another, Judas was determined he was going to sell out Jesus. But notice how Jesus responds. He's back in control. He's calm. He's even tranquil. He's collected and composed. And he even rebukes them for coming as they do at night. He says, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. He knows that everyone knows that the legal process they're going through is a sham. That's why they're doing it at night. They're trying to get it all done when no one can see in the daylight. But Jesus insists he won't uh, cry out for his legal rights and he won't run for the hills. He says the scriptures must be fulfilled. In other words, this is God's plan. It is all part of God's plan for redemption that Jesus goes through with this terrible travesty of justice and this terrible heart-rending betrayal. God's plan must be fulfilled. Now, how on earth did Jesus come from the agony to the victory. It's an extraordinary transition, isn't it? Make no mistake, he's overcome the biggest battle of all, which is the battle with yourself. Our greatest struggle, our biggest enemy, is ourselves. And if we can overcome that internal battle, then we can face the external enemies and opposition, whatever they are. Now, some might think that this was through an incredible willpower. Jesus just sort of willed himself back on his feet, like a fighter who's been knocked down in the in the tenth round, but somehow stumbles back onto his feet. Others can imagine that it's through true grit and toughness. Now, Jesus does have incredible willpower, grit and toughness. He has all of that. But at this moment the text doesn't point to those things. It points again and again to something else that is the secret to Jesus' victory. Did you notice it? It's prayer again and again he says he's going to pray he tells the disciples to pray and he comes back to them three times and talks about prayer the secret of jesus victory was prayer even in pain even in grief even in the anticipation of suffering jesus prayed and through his prayer he finds grace and strength for the trial ahead intense distress is only overcome by intense prayer. So, what do we learn about prayer in this passage? Four things intimacy, confidence, pleading, and obedience. Firstly, intimacy. Look at how Jesus prays, verse 36. Abba, Father. See, Jesus approaches God in a relational way. He comes to God as Daddy. This is not a childish word, it's a word of intimacy. It's a word that communicates a relationship of love, of closeness. And Jesus is saying, Father. And that's the first thing we do when we pray, and it's what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And when they asked him, he said, this is how you should pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name prayer should start with intimacy it's not formal it's personal then secondly there's confidence again in verse 36 he says everything is possible for you see prayer has this great confidence that's based on a theology that God is sovereign he rules he's the king of kings he owns all things he controls all things he maps out the destiny of nations He makes and sustains the entire universe. This is the God we come to, the one who has all power, all wisdom, all knowledge, all capacity, all all ability. And so we come with great confidence to God saying, everything is possible for you, Father. Everything. But thirdly, there is a reality of pleading. Notice how Jesus' posture. Usually Jews would stand to pray with arms outstretched, looking at heaven. Not here. He is on the ground. He's lying down. He's deeply distressed and troubled and he falls and he looks to the ground. And this is the posture of someone who is overcome and overwhelmed and lamenting and loud and crying out. And so there's a reality to this prayer. This is not someone who's holding it all together and coming to God in some kind of formal and polite way. This is someone who is shouting out his prayers and his laments like the psalmists in the Old Testament this is not grin and bear it, stiff a lip. So I need to ask, do you ever pray like this? Because this is how we're going to find the victory. Coming in the intimacy of relationship with God, in the confidence of God's power, with the reality of pleading. But notice it doesn't just stop there. Jesus just doesn't stop with his emotion. When he hears from God, he obeys. And that too is bound up in the relationship of God as Father. So when the father says this is his will, the child obeys. And Jesus hears from God. We don't see a, 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 hear a voice in this passage, but clearly Jesus is clear in his own mind that God has said, no, the cup won't pass from you. There is no other way. So Jesus then obeys. And once God has spoken, that's it. Jesus moves forward. He's genuinely facing immense pain and grief. He feels overwhelmed. The cross will look like the greatest failure, the greatest waste that the world has ever seen. But Jesus knows that in God's plan, the cross will actually turn out to be the greatest success that the world has ever seen. God will turn the greatest suffering and pain and rejection into a redemptive moment that will save the world. Friends, how do you know when you suffer? That God isn't going to take your suffering and use it to do something far more glorious for you and for those around you. If God can redeem and turn around even the cross, then what can he do with your pain? So here's the big lesson for us here. We have got to learn to pray like this. We've got to learn to pray like this. Those of us who say we're Christians, who follow Jesus, we've got to learn to pray intimately, confidently, really pleading, and then obedient. There's an old hymn written in 1825 by a hymn writer called James Montgomery. He said this in the hymn, Go to dark Gethsemane, you who feel the tempter's power, your Redeemer's conflict see, watch with him one bitter hour. Turn not from his griefs away. Learn of Jesus Christ to pray. That's the lesson in here for us. Learn of Jesus Christ to pray. This is crucial. We've got to learn how to pray because if we do not face crisis like Jesus did with this kind of prayer, then when the trial comes, we will crumble. And we see that in the disciples. And I want to turn now to the disciples. We've thought about Jesus' agony and victory. Now we're going to look at the apathy and the desertion of the disciples. Apathy. Perhaps if you want to look at your Bible again, you see uh, verse 37, he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit, the body, the spirit is willing, but the flesh, the body, is Weak. I wonder if apathy is the right word. I couldn't think of a way to summarize it. I want to be fair to the disciples. After all, if we were in their shoes, I wonder what we would have done. But let's be real, they do not cover themselves in glory at this point. It's been a long day, it's late, they've eaten a big meal, the Passover meal at which they would have enjoyed some wine. The last few days, Coming into Jerusalem and Jesus teaching in the temple and the crowds and the leaders and all of those events have probably been emotionally exhausting. And now they've been drawn aside for a while into this garden, which we know from another place was was an area they used to go to rest. They regularly used to go there. And so they've come here before with Jesus to rest. But now for the first time, he needs them. This is a first. Up until this point, Jesus has always been the one in charge. He's always been wise. He's always known what to do. He's always been strong and resolute. He's just seemed to be in control. But for the first time, Jesus needs their support. And they just don't know what to do and they don't step up to the task. And he brings all of them into the garden. But did you notice there were three in particular who he took further on with him as if to say, I just need these three close associates to to stand by my side at this time. And these guys are called Peter, James and John. And we've heard about them earlier on in Mark's gospel. Peter, Jesus even gave him this, this nickname, The Rock, because he was this strong character. He was a sort of a leader among the group. And Jesus gave him the name. His name's Simon, but Jesus called him Peter, The Rock. And James and John they're brothers and they've, they've sworn loyalty to Jesus earlier on in the gospel. And they said, you know, no matter what happens, we will go down with you. We'll be, we'll be by your side. And Peter has even sworn that no matter what happens, he would never deny Jesus. So here they are. They've vowed their strong support. And now's their chance to show their mettle. And they sleep. They go to sleep. Not once. Not twice. Not twice. But three times, Jesus goes back to them. Guys, you must watch and pray because we're in grave danger. But still, they sleep. And notice that even here, Jesus is primarily thinking about them, not about himself. In verse 38, he says, watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. You need to be prepared for this as well. But they don't listen. They're so full of their own self-confidence earlier. And now they're so full of sleep. Now in the Bible, sleep sleep is basically a good gift from God. But sleep also in the Bible is often a picture of spiritual unfaithfulness, of infidelity to God and his purposes. Sleep can be spiritually serious. It shows here that there's something off about a person's character. When a friend is in trouble... When a friend is grieving, when a friend is in pain or in danger, what does it say about you if you you just go to sleep on the job? You're just not there for them. You become passive, you're apathetic, you don't know what to do, so you just sit back and let it all happen. What does it say about your character? It is a dangerous thing to be said that you you slept when someone needed you. And because of their apathy, when the test came, They weren't ready. Because the final act in this play is desertion. Remember the four points? Agony and victory, apathy and desertion. Desertion, read with me at the end of the passage, verse 50. Then everyone deserted him and fled. That's a terrible sentence, that. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Now Mark... The writer actually refrains from calling them disciples at this point. He doesn't say the disciples deserted him. They're not worthy of the name at this point. They're just the the guys. Everyone deserted him. They just ran. In spite of all the bold promises, in spite of the big talk, when they saw an armed mob with swords and clubs bent on violence, they turned tail and ran. And then there's a really strange detail, verses 51 and 52, about a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment. He's following Jesus, and when they seize him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, what is this strange, apparently trivial detail in the story? Some people have suggested that this is the writer Mark's signature, a bit like Alfred Hitchcock always used to appear in one of his films, it came on in a bit part and then went out again and you knew it was a hitchcock film some have suggested that this is actually mark saying i was there i was a young man at the time and i'm ashamed to say that i ran for my life along with everybody else now that is really quite possible that it is mark saying that but we have no other evidence uh, to back that up one way or the other but more poignantly if we think about the whole bible this isn't the first time that someone has fled Naked in a garden, trying to hide themselves. Right back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, fled from God to hide their nakedness. It's a powerful image of shame and of disgrace and of abandoning Jesus. But what would we have done? I wonder. Followers of Jesus who do not pray or try to follow him in their own strength will collapse at such times. Without fervent prayer and trusting God and leaning on him, we will not experience victory. We too will collapse. And let's be honest, shall we? We often do. Not when times are going well and life is sweet, of course. Not when all's going right with the world, but when it falls apart. When we experience disappointment, when we experience betrayal, or there's grief, or bitterness, or waiting, or senseless events, or suffering that seems pointless. When these things come flooding in to our lives and our souls, what do we do? Now, you've got to know that life is full of such things it's not a question of if but when suffering is inevitable and so the question for us is what kind of person will I be when God brings pain into my life what kind of person will I be when God brings pain into my life here's what we've seen in the garden agony but victory contrasted with apathy And desertion and we've seen a powerful lesson in the need to pray followers of Jesus must learn to pray like he did but I don't want to end there I want to end with just three reflections from my uh, Scottish pastor friend Neil Macmillan. he says that this text gives us a deep view of sin a deep view of the gospel and a deep picture of the love of Jesus Gethsemane gives us a deep view of sin. It shows us that although salvation comes freely to us, it costs Jesus everything. It shows us that we can't do anything to make ourselves acceptable to God. If there had been any other way to save us, Jesus would have taken it. But there is no other way. He must drink this cup. Our problems are so deeply embedded in our hearts, in our fallen human nature, that there is no way of helping us except that the Son of God drinks the cup of suffering for us. Sin is death, and either he must die or we must die. A deep view of our sin. Secondly, Gethsemane gives us a deep view of the Gospel. Unless we understand our sin, the Gospel will just seem like good advice to us and it will therefore be empty of its power. But when we realise the gravity of our sinful nature, when we come upon that, we realise that we're helpless and hopeless without power from God that comes through believing in what Jesus has done for us at the cross. Then we are capable of deep heart-level change that Jesus wants to drive through our lives, to transform us, to make us more like him in the power of the Holy Spirit. If we don't have this kind of deep gospel, we'll just focus on superficial things, on controlling and changing our behaviour. But if we understand the depth of our sin, the depth of Jesus' solution, then we can really be changed. And thirdly, and finally, it gives us a deep view of the love of Jesus. He held nothing back. He, he, he looked at the cross in that evening of anticipation he he knew what was coming he he was facing that that infinite separation hell on earth from God the father he was facing that horror and he looked at it and he looked at you and he took the cross he chose the cross for your sake that surely is the greatest and most profound picture of the love of Jesus Christ that we will ever have So can I encourage you to stay a while in the garden today? Stay among the olive trees. Stay in the grove. Sit and look at that figure as he sobs on the ground, pleading with God if there's any other way to take the cup from him. But even so, let God's will be done. And see him as he stands and strides forth confidently to face the cross. And know that he does it all for love of sinners like you and me. There's no other love like it, the love of Jesus Christ. Gethsemane will give us a deep view of sin, a deep view of the gospel, and a deep view of the love that Jesus has for each one of us. I'm going to pray now just to ask that God will impress some of that upon our hearts as we move forward into Passion Week. Let's pray. Loving God, we have trodden on holy ground today. We've looked at the, the suffering and the, the overwhelming grief of the, the Son of God himself. And so we ask now that this would not merely be information, but it would be transformation and that you would show us and teach us things about you and about ourselves in this narrative that would change us forever. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.